Let's go back then to these, this short passage, verses 12 to 17 of 1 John 2. Very important you have it in front of you, because I'm going to say some controversial things this morning, and you better, you know, you want to make sure that it's actually what the Bible says and not just James's prejudices and dubious personal wisdom. Uh, the passage falls into two sections. The first three verses, sorry, the first two verses, 12 and 13, um, sorry, 12 to 14, the first three verses are really John reassuring the church. Now, if you've been following through this series, you'll know that he's, he's, he's set up some tests of whether people are really Christians or not. And he's given us food for thought as to whether our Christianity is authentic, our Christian experience is authentic, our Christian belief is authentic or not. And it's almost as if here he takes a breather just to reassure the church that he, his belief is that their Christian faith is authentic because it's based on genuine spiritual experience of God. And then in the second half, verses 15 through to 17, he gives a warning, a warning of what can happen in the church and to Christian people quite easily, which is that they become worldly in their thinking and in their living. And he's going um, to set that up in a way that reminds me of Paul in, uh, in Romans 12, when he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed in your thinking by the renewing of your mind through the work of the Holy Spirit of truth. So we're going to look at that second section on worldliness in a moment, but first we're going to think about genuine spiritual experience and how that... that um, how that reflects to age in the church. Because if you're looking at that little passage, those three verses, you'll notice that John addresses three groups. He addresses dear children, fathers, and young men. Now, allowing for the fact he's not really just talking to the men, he's, he's using, as would have been typical in the ancient world, and indeed in our world up until recently, he's using male language to encompass men and women. We'd use more inclusive language nowadays, probably. Um, Allowing for that, he appears to be talking to children, fathers, and young people. However, um, I think my conclusion is, given that he goes on quite a lot to talk to address the church's dear children, you'll notice that in verse 18 of chapter 2, verse 28 of chapter 2, and so on, uh, verse 7 of chapter 3, um, because he does that, I think what he says addressing dear children, he's addressing to everyone. But then he goes on to speak to those who are older and those who are younger and the roles that each have to play in the church. So let's start off by saying, what does he say to everyone? The things that he says to dear children. He says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of, the, of his name. He's referring to Jesus. So on account of Jesus' name, because of his death on the cross, your sins have been forgiven. You have experienced forgiveness. And secondly, he says, I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. So you've had forgiveness in Jesus' name, and you know the Father. And we could see this again and again throughout the New Testament. The foundational Christian experience is that we come to know God as our Father, and that we have an experience of forgiveness, of him taking away our shame for all of the, the sin, what the Bible calls sin, which is essentially just all our selfishness 
the way that we are curved in on ourselves, the way we're tempted to try and bend everyone around us to our, our agenda, uh, the way in which we make selfish choices, the way in which we see ourselves as more important than others, you name it. All that grubby stuff in our minds, in our hearts, in our actions, washed away. That is the foundational Christian experience. Can I have the next slide, or the first slide up, please? Next one after that. And so hopefully, in your Christian faith, you can identify with this image. That God has, I guess this might be a, a picture of the return of the prodigal son. This sense that God has accepted you and forgiven you. When you think back over your life. And when internal voices come to accuse you, you can soothe those voices. In fact, you can push them away with the sure knowledge that God has forgiven you. And secondly, and closely allied to that then, we have, by the work of the Spirit in our lives, a sense of God as our Father. Next slide, please. That when you think of God the Father in heaven, his fundamental disposition towards you is that of a loving father. Of course, it's much easier if you've had the great blessing of a loving father in your life. Harder. Which is a big encouragement to the fathers like myself. You can make it easier for your children to believe in God or you can make it harder. Make it easier for them. But this is the foundation for us of our experience of God. So every person, who the foundational work of the Spirit in the life of a Christian person is to reveal God through Jesus as a forgiving and loving Father to those who have repented of sin. And John reassures the church that because you've had this experience, you're Christians. With all these tests that I've set up, if this is the heart of your understanding of God, that at the centre of the universe is a God, a Father, who loves you and who offers free forgiveness in Jesus' name, then you are a Christian. But then he addresses the fathers and the young men, or if you prefer, the older people in the church and the younger people. So where's the dividing line? Well, it is, the older people are always those who are just older than me. I'm always in the younger person category, and I intend to remain in that category. No, I'm joking. But um, let's just think for a minute. Let's say the cutoff is, I don't know, 40, 45, whatever. He seems to be saying that the fathers have deep knowledge of God. He says, you've known him who's from the beginning... Because you know him who is from the beginning. And in particular, that's a reference to Jesus. But he's reflecting on the fact that in addition to the knowledge we all have of God the Father, the older ones have a deep knowledge. It's weathered some storms. You've been through a bit in life. You've been through the ups and the downs. Your faith in God is weathered. You're strong and secure. You're much less likely to be blown off course because you've seen a bit, and God's seen you for a few things, and you've developed some wisdom for life. Can I have the next slide, please? Um, the younger people, on the other hand, we are told, 
have overcome the evil one. Uh, you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. It seems to me that what John is saying here is, incidentally, overcoming, that's a word that John uses quite a lot and it's, it's a, a word for those who are on the right side of history. They're, they're going in the right direction. If you know uh, John's revelation well, you'll know that it, at the start of the, the book there are these letters and constantly at the end of each of those letters, Jesus promises a, a reward to those who overcome. What are we overcoming? Well, we're essentially overcoming the world. And it seems to me that John is, is contrasting the wisdom that comes with age and, and that sort of strength, that security, the fact that roots go deep, with the energy of youth and the vision of young people to change the world. Older people, as they get older, tend to start accepting things a little bit more because it's the way it's always been and they've, had, they've lost a few fights as well as winning a few and perhaps some of their energy begins to dissipate. Now, what do we need most in the church, the wisdom or the energy? We need both these things, right? And when they're functioning well together, you're cooking on gas. But in this country and in the Western world generally, quite a lot of churches are age-specific. Here's what I think has happened. In, I'm, I'm painting with big brushstrokes here. There will be exceptions to this. In our churches, there has been a tendency in the West for older people to try and retain the control of the church and keep it operating in the style they feel comfortable with. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of churches in our country where long ago the older people put their foot down and said, nothing changes here. And what that did was it alienated the young people, younger people who had lots of energy, but actually didn't want to sign up for a program of becoming middle-aged at 25. This is true, you know. This is, this, I'm, I'm, this is the truth. And loads of them, we've lost, for about 30 years now, the church has been hemorrhaging a thousand younger people a week in the West. And I think this is one of the primary causes of it. What's then happened is the more faithful younger people have tended to go off and set up churches for, for basically younger people in the absence of a lot of wisdom that comes with older folk. And those churches become quite exciting places, but spiritually quite brittle. Because there's not a lot of wisdom around. Brothers and sisters, it wasn't meant to be like that. And here's what should happen in a healthy church. The older people surrender the control to the younger people and say, go. Make this church fit for the next generation. We're right here and we've got your backs. And the younger people say, wow, thank you for giving us these opportunities. Thank you for providing that platform for us. We respect you. And is it all right if we check in with you quite a lot of the time just to get wisdom? Because the truth is we haven't got the first idea what we're doing. Right? You get a church where the two groups function like that, all sorts of possibilities. Really exciting. We need both.
So in the first service, I've got Chris and Charlie up. Charlie's not here, and I can't really pick on a younger person. But uh, Chris, uh, who do you feel most, most like on that picture now? <laughs> yeah. As we all know, I mean, Chris is ancient now. But I mean, no, seriously, though, Chris, Chris has, in, on the staff team here, since Chris has joined the team, we have an older, more experienced pastor. That's really helpful. At times, just to be able to say, do you know what? Seen it before. It's okay. Get through this. Been in this situ- been a situation like this many times before. I think this is the path we need to tread. Equally, it's really good to have some of the younger staff members around because they still think they can change the world. And they can, possibly. We need both, brothers and sisters. Here's something. If you're older, and most of you are on the the wrong end of 40, right? Or the right end of 40, depending on how you look at it. What we mustn't do is lose touch with the younger people in our church. The truth is, you can attend a church which is all ages and never speak to anyone younger than yourself. That's a disaster. We are all, actually, even in our 20s, I think, in the church, one of the lessons we need to learn straight away is our primary focus needs to be on those who are younger. Church is only ever one generation from extinction. And I love churches where even the teenagers are focused on the children. And constantly we're looking down, how can I take what was invested in me by older people and invest in the next lot? Because we've got a shelf life, all of us, right? I'm I'm not going to be your pastor forever. I'm going to run out of energy at some point. I want to leave behind something that can thrive. And that will happen if we invest in younger people. All right. There's much more I'd like to say about that, but I'm going to leave it at that. And we come to the second half. Do not love the world or anything in the world. I was at a Christian convention once, and they had this absolutely brilliant video on on these words. And some of you will remember, I think it's Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I've never seen the film. But is there a, a, is there a character, a wicked, evil, sinister character in that called the Child Snatcher or something? Yeah, okay, some of you have seen the film. And it goes around and he captures all these kids and puts them in a cage. It's absolutely horrendous. It, and um, what it did was it showed, a, it, it showed a, a clip from that of the child catcher going and catching all these kids with the promise of all kinds of treats. And then it ended with the, the children in this cage, this horrific image of these children having been caught. And then the words come up, do not love the world or anything in the world. It ends very badly. The child snatcher, is that his name? Child catcher? Child snatcher? I can't remember. Offers treats to lure the kids in and they end up in a cage. And Satan is doing exactly the same thing. What does John mean when he says, do not love the world? What is this word world and what does it mean? Well, what it doesn't mean is that. It doesn't mean the earth. The Bible is clear that the earth is God's good creation. It's fallen, yes, it fell when humanity fell and there's lots about it that is not as God intended. But the creation is basically good. And if I could sit down with John... And, uh, and perhaps the writers of the New Testament and just say, you don't know this, but for our sake later on, could you sort of just qualify what you mean when you say world? Because people in our culture are going to hear the earth 
and they're going to think that the earth is bad and they're going to think that the earth is going to be destroyed. Well, um, I don't think that's what the New Testament teaches at all. When John uses the word world, he, he's really talking about humanity in its opposition to God. He's talking about the world system. That's the way I tend to, to understand it. The way of the world. The world system that sort of is structurally unjust, oppresses some people so that other people can live high on the hog, and, and is, um, it, it tends to distort the truth and hide the truth, the world in all its ugliness. And, and that world, according to John, is, uh, is under the power of the evil one. It's contrasted to the kingdom of God. So there's the kingdom of God that Jesus establishes. And there's the world system that is Satan's idea and marked by a lack of truth and injustice and unfairness and misery and oppression and slavery and so on. It is um, the world system that is ultimately under the judgment of God. The, not, not the created world, but the world of ungodliness. And the Bible is clear that that world system of greed and lust and pride, that needs to be wholly rejected by the Christian. Jesus said, you cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon representing materialism, the lust for money and possessions. If that craving is in you, get rid of it. You cannot be that person and be God's child. James said, enmity, Friendship to the world system is enmity against God. They use black and white language here. This is not nuance here. This world system, Paul says, don't conform to it. He says, this world system has been crucified to me with all that pride and all that lust and all that craving and greed and oppression and uh, lies and deceit. I can't have anything to do with it now. When I bowed the knee to Jesus at the cross, that, that stuff was crucified to me. So this is black and white language. We cannot have anything to do with it, this worldliness. Can I have the next slide, please? Um, two of the main... Uh, the main ways that the world system manifests itself, and it manifests itself differently in different cultures, but in the West, two main philosophies that dominate, they are materialism, the idea that personal salvation is to be found, personal freedom is to be found through the accumulation of stuff. That can be physical stuff, or it can be sort of uh, psychological stuff like success. And often the two things go together. If I just had that car, if I just had that house, if I just had that job, if I just was able to climb the greasy pole a little bit higher, I'd be happy. But we all know it's not true. But it's still very powerful and very tempting to us. Here's the man who's standing on top of a great pile of possessions 
but miserably finding he's still not happy. Uh, the charts show, with re the relationship between possessions and happiness, is that right at the bottom, when you've got nothing, people tend to be pretty unhappy. Well, understandably, I mean, if you're struggling to feed yourself, that's going to be quite miserable. And for a while, increasing wealth equates to greater happiness. Stands to reason, right? But there's a point at which it begins to plateau, and eventually it just... Doesn't, and doesn't make any increase. In fact, I think it may start to go down. I haven't looked at it for a while, so I'm quoting from memory. There is not a straight line between increased possessions and happiness. And actually, I think there comes a point at which our possessions, if we're not careful, begin to own us rather than the other way around. And then it's a lot of pressure. The other main uh, belief is that you can find personal salvation and freedom through pleasure. And so we just try and max out our pleasure. But in reality, at some point, that, that commitment to just living a life of pleasure turns to ash in our mouth and leads to a new form of slavery. I very much enjoy eating chocolate. Anyone in the same boat? And it would be marvellous if I was a person who could buy a small chocolate bar once a week and just enjoy it over the course of the week. That would be perfectly fine, right? But what I find is I'm not really interested in eating one chocolate bar. I want 20 chocolate bars. Anyone understand where I'm coming from or is it just me? Yeah, okay, good. Okay, there's a few, there's a few people who are honest and a lot of people who, in addition to their chocoholic nature, are liars. Uh, and, uh, no, and some of you, I'm sure, righteous and holy and never, never worried about this. Um, and this is a metaphor for actually even more serious issues. That, although, in truth, if I, if I decided to adopt a posture of hedonism towards my eating, I'd be 25 stone and I'd go to an early grave. That's the truth. And the same is true of sex and all the other appetites and all the other pleasures we might seek. If you take the view, the chains are off, I'll do as I please, you will end up not with freedom but with slavery. And worse, you will cause a lot of pain to the people around you while you're at it. Let's look at some of the... Uh, the, the Bible talks... Sorry, John talks about this as the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. There he's talking about the cravings that are represented in this picture. Not, not godly desire, it's perfectly alright when I'm hungry to eat a meal, right? But there's a tipping point somewhere between eating when I'm hungry to meet my needs and enjoying that and where it tips over into craving. And that can be true about just about any appetite God's given you. When love becomes lust, instead of being something where I'm looking to satisfy my needs in a God-given way and bring blessing to others while I'm at it, I'm now on a single-track compulsion to meet my cravings. And the problem is, the more you meet them, the more they get stronger. The lust of the flesh and the eyes. But there's another way to be worldly even if you've managed to master your appetites, and even if you haven't, there's another whole aspect to it, and that is what John refers to as the pride of life. Oh. 
thing about cravings is you kind of know that they're sinful and it's a bit embarrassing if people see that you're the slave of your appetites. All of us want to appear in control. But pride, the pride of life, that can be, uh, that can be perfectly acceptable in church. But think about Jesus' parable. You've got the tax collector who is the slave of his appetite for money. And he knows he's a sinner. He comes before God and he says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says he gets forgiveness. But the, the condi spiritual condition of the proud is even worse. Much, much worse. Because the Pharisee comes in, who's got it all mastered, maybe. At least he's able to give that impression. And he says, thank God I'm not like this person. And he's praising God for how wonderful he is. And he goes away alienated from God. Pride. And if the devil doesn't get you through your cravings, he will try and get you through pride. There's always two ways to fall off a horse. All right. Let's look at some of the ideas that are current in our culture as we wrap up and what the Christian response to them should be because these are worldly ideas. So the Barna Group in America did some research into attitudes in contemporary culture in 2016. I think these are pretty widespread ideas and uh, I'm going to give you a Christian response to them in the hope that if worldly thinking has crept into your mind and my mind that we might flush it out, repent of it, and get a more Christian, get a more authentically New Testament perspective on them. So, first, have the next slide. Uh, an idea that is very current in the media and very current in our society, that the best way to find your identity is to look in there. Or in there. Or somewhere inside. There's a big problem with this. Huge problems, actually. It issues in all kinds of really nasty stuff, not least utter confusion, because is what is going on in there stable? Is it any kind of bedrock to live your life on? The Christian, on the contrary, says to find your identity, discover the truth outside yourself. There is not, it's not just interior truth, subjective truth, there is objective truth that you can actually build your life on and won't change with your moods. And of course, for the Christian, that's to be found in Jesus. Next. You should not criticise someone else's life choices. That is a view that most people in our culture affirm. And yet, nobody in their right mind obeys that. I suggest a social experiment. If you've got more than one kid, if you've been blessed with kids and you've got more than one, Raise one by never correcting them at all and raise the other one by doing your best as a parent to give them godly instruction and see what happens. Now I'm suggesting that because obviously everyone knows that would be a very bad idea indeed. We've got a culture where staying silent when someone is hidden, heading for the rocks is seen as a good thing. It's not a good thing. It's unloving. Of course you do it in humility and you might be wrong. And if so, you apologise when you've got it wrong. But loving others does not always mean staying silent. Next. To be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things you most desire. That is an idea that most people affirm, and it is madness. As I said earlier, 
I love chocolate. I love other things as well that would not be good for me. In fact, it's not, uh, it's not inappropriate to say I have cravings for things that are not good for me. If I lived like that, I would shipwreck my own life and I would shipwreck my family. And the consequences would be felt not only by me, but by my wife and my children, all the people dearest to me, and all of you who would lose somebody who is supposed to be, a, a, as best I can, a role model. And the funny thing is that people who live like that are not even joyful. Joy, on the contrary, is, to be found in, not, is not primarily to be found in pursuing our own cravings, but in giving of ourselves to bless others. The Christian who sacrifices themselves has joy that the hedonist knows nothing of. Next slide. The highest goal in life is to enjoy it as much as possible. Well, this is very interesting. Because what is true joy? What it, yeah, I, there's some things I enjoy in the moment, and there's some things that I would really enjoy, but I'm only going to get if I invest in them long term. So what's the joy of an affair compared to the joy of a strong marriage? What is the joy, yet for yesterday, Tesco's were doing a bar of chocolate this size. It was £6.50 down to £9. You remember things that catch your attention, right? This caught my attention, and for a brief moment I thought, it, and I thought, leave it well alone. Once that's in the house, there's only one, one thing that's going to, well, there's only one outcome. Keep it out of the house, right? Now, I would have enjoyed eating, sitting down, watching a football match and eating a whole lot. But that joy would have been very... It wouldn't even have been joy in the end. And I'd hated myself afterwards. The highest goal of life is to give glory to God. And in so doing, to become the sort of person that experiences the joy of a life well lived. Next slide, please. Now this, in my judgment, is the worst of the lot. People can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. Now that is a very commonly held view in our culture. If you ask people whether they agree with that or disagree with it, most people will say they agree with that. And yet they themselves don't live that. Because our culture is obsessed with what is an acceptable belief and what isn't an acceptable belief. You know that, right? Every time you open a newspaper now, people are getting cancelled because of some belief they hold. And it's going both ways, incidentally, now. People are mutually cancelling each other all the time. Our beliefs always have an effect on society. Our beliefs are important. That's why they need to be brought out into the public and debated properly. Now, God does give people the freedom to believe whatever they want, and we make a terrible mistake if we try to oppress people or control them into believing what we consider to be the right beliefs. So God does give people the freedom to believe, but make no mistake, your beliefs will affect not just you and the course of your life, but the life of your family, and to the extent that you have leadership, they will affect the people you lead, for good or for real, and that's inescapable. Finally, 
Any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. And I've added they're not just acceptable, but for a lot of people they think it's, a, it's an important, if not a primary, means of personal fulfilment. We're going to spend some time looking at this uh, in our Elephant in the Room series uh, coming up over the subsequent months because it's such an important story now, this. An awful lot of particularly younger people in our culture believe that. And what is the outcome of that? Oh my goodness, it has wreaked chaos in our society. Loads of kids growing up without both parents, um, which is, you know, all the evidence suggests that is not the fairest thing you can do to your kid. Now, if that's happened in your experience, maybe not your fault. I, I'm not in any way wishing to land you with anything, and the church exists partially to provide the support for parents of whatever configuration, right, in bringing up kids, because it's a really difficult job. But the truth is, this has led to loads of what we might call feral men, who are just fathering children all over the place and leaving the women to deal with the consequences. It has led to a whole, whole rafts of other problems, but not incidentally, it has also led to people having less sex on average. Did you know that? And quite apart from the shame and the personal feelings of abandonment and um, gross disappointment in relationships it leaves people with, it has also led to, to the breakdown of family of traditional forms of family. I can quite understand how when the West look, uh, sorry, the countries outside the West look on at the West with this, they want nothing to do with it. And God designed boundaries for sex and sexuality in order for human society to flourish. All right, our time is up. I wonder where you are on all those beliefs and others. I wonder what you would give yourself as a, God, a holiness, uh, what do you give yourself percentage-wise for holiness? Or, or whether you'd say, no, I'm quite worldly, really. These ideas and these, this, these ways of living have infiltrated me. It's a very important question, brothers and sisters. Do not love the world or anything in it. When I was a youth worker, I often used to say to the young people, are you a thermometer or a thermostat? A thermometer simply reflects the environment it's in. A thermostat controls it. Do you just reflect the culture you're in and adopt all the values of that culture and the beliefs of that culture? Or is there a point at which you cut off and say no? Final slide, please. Look at this oak tree. I don't know how many hundreds of years old that is, but it was probably around, at least through the Victorian era, with very different attitudes to today. And it's here in postmodern Britain. And it will be here in a hundred years' time if Jesus hasn't come back with a whole different culture. Cultures come and go. World systems come and go. But if you give yourself to the Lord and you resist worldliness, then you will live forever. God bless you.